Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs, chapter 18. I've entitled this um, message, You Got a Friend. And yes, of course, I ripped off the title. <laughs> Tell you a little bit about that later. Proverbs 18, verse 24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I was in the office studying yesterday, and the youngest of the Doval family is Jim. I call him either Jimbo or Fatso. He calls me ugly brother, and that's sort of a Doval, a Doval thing. Uh, don't get me wrong, he's all buffed out. And, <laughs> and um, he has just got done traveling the country with his daughter, Mariah, and um, he was telling me about his two-day trip. You know, it's, I think it's, the reason I'm bringing it up is a brother can pick up the phone and just yak at you. And just say, he said, I just want to tell you a couple stories. You got time? While well, I was studying, I said, go for it. And so he said, oh, it's two days down to Tennessee. She's being scouted on a national level. She took MVP at a basketball camp in Denver. So he's going on and on and just bragging up Mariah to the hilt and kidding back and forth like they do. One of the things I remember he told me is that she's in the Word. You know, she's reading all the way down there. And his point was nothing really came out of the trip to Tennessee. And he said, yeah, but you were in the Word all the way down and all the way out back. You probably wouldn't have been doing that if uh, we weren't on the road for those two days. Well, I no sooner got back and I get this call from Colorado, where she really wants to go. It's a Christian school and has one of the best coaches. And that's where she was MVP for that training camp. So having said all that, they got a call as soon as they got home, and now they're going to go out and check that out. And it looks, looks pretty good. My point in all that, well, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He didn't call for any other particular reason except to tell me about Mariah. Did I say she was adopted from Russia? Did I mention that? They got her when she was just really, really small. But we kid a lot, usually with friends, especially in, in the Doval family. It's all my dad's fault. If you were a friend of my dad's, you usually would get in trouble somewhere along the line. I think his best one he ever pulled was um, during light fly season, living in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, on Lake Winnebago. He took out a full-page ad in the Northwestern and said, Lake flies, problem, call, and then he put his best friend's telephone number down. <laughs> the phone didn't stop ringing for a month. I tried to warn Judy about this ahead of time, <laughs> uh, and it's just between some of my family members, that stuff kind of goes on. But, you know, you can do it. If, if you find me picking on you, you know you're my friend. People who don't know me got to be careful because they, uh, they have perceptions about pastors. Matter of fact, the other day, we were at an estate sale, and uh, Mel and Linda were over there helping out Susie, and one of the gals there was related to a couple that I actually sang at their wedding. Linda goes, you sing? <laughs> I said, I used to. <laughs> I said, yeah, I sang at her wedding. And I'm not getting started here at all this morning, am I? Okay, so here's a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. 
says the only way to have a friend is to be one. Well, that's another way of saying if, if, if you want to have a friend, then you've got to be a friendly guy. Another great quote by an unknown person, a real friend is a guy who walks in when everybody else walks out. That's a real friend. When everybody else is written you off and taken off, you'll find out who your friends are real quick, and you'll find out who your friends aren't. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, a friend loves at all times. He'll, he, he'll be with, with you through thick and thin. Whether you're right or you're wrong, he might correct you. Um, the Bible says that uh, a good friend will tell you the truth and, and speak the truth, and a wise person you know, will, will hear it and receive the instruction. The Proverbs are teaching us that it's only a fool when he's corrected won't receive it, but a wise person will take it to heart and say, you know, there's some wisdom in what you're saying. And I trust you because you're my friend. And you're my brother in the Lord, so I'll, I'll pray about it and see if, if what you're saying is so. So, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, Solomon, like Emerson, said, to have one, you have to be one. And we're gonna see this morning, this next verse is prophetic in nature, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, as tight as you might be in family relationships. And not all families are tight. You know, there's, I understand there's a lot of uh, sibling rivalries and all that sort of stuff that goes on in families, and that's, that's the flip side of the coin. But um, this second part of verse 24, a friend who will stick closer than a brother, of course, is a reference to... Um, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I like the way that it's put here. We see and we understand that, that Jesus is our Lord, he's our Savior, he's our King. But here we're told he wants to deal with us on a friendship basis and walk and talk to him in such a manner. One of the greatest, as I thought about this week, I thought, well, what, what's one of the greatest friendships that you can find in the Scriptures? One of the greatest friendships in the Bible is really between King David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So I'm going to have you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and just look at their friendship, the story of David. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 17, a story you're all familiar with. We'll be in Israel in a couple months. We'll be in the Valley of Elah. It's an A spot. We actually point out where the Philistines were gathered, where Goliath was, and where the, the, the children of Israel were. You can, you're right there. Matter of fact, we actually take you to the brook where David probably found his five smooth stones. Well, you know the story. Day in and day out, um, they wanted to settle it between one of their champions named Goliath, and then go ahead, pick your man, Israel, send him out. Nobody would go. And um, Goliath was almost 10 feet tall, 9'9", nine, nine, some people say. And um, he tormented day in and day, not, day out the God of Israel, blasphemed his name, blasphemed Saul and the army, and nobody would do anything. Well, David's father, Jesse, wanted to send food to his older brothers that were with Saul <clears throat> at the time, and um, when, <clears throat> excuse me, 
<clears throat> my thoughts this morning. When he arrived on the scene, <clears throat> here was Goliath going through his routine, blaspheming the Lord. And um, David basically says, well, why isn't somebody going down there and take that uncircumcised Philistine out? And um, um, David said, I'll do it. And so they took him to Saul, and, and Saul said, you can't do it, you're just, a, you're just a kid. And he says, well, let me tell you, when I used to take care of dad's sheep, a bear came one time, and I just grabbed him by the beard and took his head off. Another time, a lion came, and I took care of him. This Philistine is no different than those guys. Let me at him. So the Bible says, okay, go for it, David. And Saul gave him his equipment. Now, David, we don't know his age, but we know that Saul was one head taller than everybody else in Israel. That's what it says. And we read here that the armor didn't fit. And to me, one of the the funniest verses in the Bible, in verse 20. 39 of chapter 17, David fastened his sword to his armor and and tried to walk. Here he's got the, it's like having a suit on, four sizes too big. And David's weapon of choice, of course, was his slingshot. And he says, "I, I can't use these, I've not tested them, so David took them off. And he makes his way down, and um, oh, I hope we get to watch this one one day. They wake up Goliath. He has this huge shield, great big spear. And uh, David, he taunts David. He says, you're going to send me this punk kid out here to take me on. He reviles him. And uh, David throws it right back at him and says, today you're a history man. Your head is gone. And I'm going to feed it to the birds. And you know the story. But I want to step back just a little bit. Because with Saul would have been Jonathan. If there's one guy out there that should have been doing the fighting, the biggest guy was Saul. And, but none of the men would go. They were all terrified. But my point is, I'm thinking Jonathan is watching this whole thing. Here's this guy, untrained, no equipment on, and he's going down with such a confidence. It's a matter of perspective as far as David is concerned. Um, all of the men of Israel saw Goliath as a giant, <laughs> David looked at him and says, you're no match for my God, who's quite a bit bigger than you are. All a matter of perspective. And it says this, this is over before it starts, as far as David is concerned. Picks up five stones, a lot of speculation, why five? Yes, it's true that Goliath had four other brothers. Uh, speculation. But it only, he only needed one. And uh, it was right between the eyes. He laid him out. Took, he took Goliath's sword, took up his head, and held it up. And all the army of the Philistines hightail it and take off. That day, now I'll pick it up. And uh, chapter 18, David, Saul said, who is that guy? He's the son of Jesse. He says, bring him home. Uh, I want a guy like that. And he eventually became the commander over Saul's army. But Jonathan is taking this all in. And so we read, we're talking about a friendship and that develops. And the point I want to make is there's going to be mutual respect between King David 
um, not King David, just David and Jonathan. Verse one of chapter 18. And it was so when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Today, that would be equivalent like giving your car (laughs) and any most precious possessions. And um, Jonathan's respect, not only for his fighting ability, but his faith in his God. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And um, the mutual respect, if you go back to chapter 14, let's just look, take a little look at the faith of Jonathan. I think here's two men who look at each other <clears throat> and they admire the faith that's there. Uh, chapter 14 <clears throat> is a story. Um, Jonathan and his armor bearer, uh, they're camped against the Philistines. And um, Jonathan, in verse 6, decides that he's going to go on a little scouting campaign on, on his own, and he's just going to take his armor bearer with him. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Jonathan said to his young man who bore his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison and see these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, that's how David thought. So his armor bearer said to him, go for it, do all that's in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. And Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we're gonna let them see us. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we won't go up. But if they say to us, come on up to us, then we will go. For the Lord has delivered them into our hands and this will be a sign to us. We call this putting a fleece before the Lord. Lord, I want to see your hand. If your hand is in it, great. If your hand isn't in it, then we don't want any part of it. So Jonathan, by faith, says, hey, if they say you guys stay down there, We're not into this. But if they say, hey, you two Jews down there, come on up here. We'll show you a thing or two. Then he says, we're going for it. So what happens? Then the menacing garrison called to Jonathan, verse 12, and his armor bearer and said, hey, you guys, come on up here, and we'll we'll show you a thing or two. So Jonathan said to the armor bearer, come up after him. In other words, let's go for it. For the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees. And what I want you to see here, my mind's eye, it wasn't a timid kind of sneak up around the rear. These guys are scrambling up the hill as fast as they can get there. And hand and and knees. And Jonathan climbed on his hands and knees and his armor bearer after him. and And they fell before Jonathan. And he came after him, his armor bearer, and they killed him. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. 
Jonathan and David's friendship and their mutual respect, they were both great warriors. But more importantly, they had the attitude, if the Lord's in it, how can we ever lose? The Lord can save by many, or he can save by few. Um, The battle is the Lord's. So, a friend will really, their friendship grew over time, and a friend will really do anything for a friend. Let's flip over to chapter 20, and I'll just point out a couple verses here. Here's Jonathan talking to David in verse 4. Jonathan said to David, and this is what a friend will do, whatever you desire, I will do it for you. If a friend is really a friend, he'll stop what he's doing if you ask him to do something, and he'll just say, you got it, what do you want? That's a real friend. And he'll just quit whatever's going on. He says, whatever you want, David, Uh, because you are my friend, I'm going to do it for you. Look at verse 17, the same chapter. Jonathan again caused David uh, to vow. Why? Because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, it's hard for us to admit, but we love ourselves very, very much. And the reason I know that is Jesus says that we're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, telling us what? We love ourselves quite a bit. And uh, so here, David is coming straight out and saying, I love you, David, just as much as I love myself. Pick it up in verse 42. It said, now as soon, let me just give you the background to this. Saul has become jealous of David's success. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. I mean, it was a folk song in the streets of Jerusalem. And this brought up jealousy. What I want to point out at this time is Jonathan's awareness that uh, the anointing has passed from his father Saul to David. Don't think Jonathan wasn't aware that when David would come in and play his harp uh, when the distressing spirit came upon him, don't think that Jonathan wasn't aware of that. And I think it was common knowledge that David was the next king and Jonathan was on his way out. It was just a matter of time. But here's what impresses me about Jonathan. Who should have been the next king? Well, the son. And even with that, uh, where it should have been a rivalry, uh, Jonathan is fine with it. If the Lord's hand is on you, um, David, then the Lord's will be done. Only a friend talks like that. All right, with that much going on, now Saul wants to kill him, and, Dave, and Jonathan wants to protect David. So they arranged this meeting. He tells him to go hide in a field overnight, and he'd come out in the morning. And he said, I'm going to shoot some arrows, and if the arrows go a certain distance, it's okay to come home, but if they don't, then you've got to get out of dodge. So that's leading up to verse 40, 41 here. 
So now as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place that he was hiding in the south, and he fell on his face to the ground, and he bowed three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Now, I'm sorry I have to bring it up, but the, uh, the homosexual community uh, has, they're open um, about that particular verse that David and Jonathan were homosexuals. And um, the absurdity of it is, is um, absurd. How, how's that? <laughs> and it, it bothers me greatly because here we have two men, men. Okay, these are man's man. And um, they simply had this great mutual, deep love for each other and respect for their abilities that were there. Um, I love many men in the ministry uh, because of, of, and I love many men who aren't in the ministry. And uh, it's a mutual respect for the abilities maybe that God has given to them, like a Chuck Smith, somebody that I can say I love with all my heart, or many men. I get a text every Sunday morning uh, from Roger Allman. I know it's there, so I'll go push my phone, and here's a text that he texts out to a bunch of us. He says, hey, I just want you to know I love you guys, and that the Lord is going to be with you today as you go and speak to your fellowship. And uh, I, I expected I would feel bad if it, if it wasn't there. So I love the guy. He's traveled uh, to Haiti with us. He was one of our speakers here. And we're brothers in, in Christ, and um, I'm not ashamed to say at all that, that I love him. Here David gets on his face, and he bows down to Jonathan. And Jonathan, verse 42, said to David, Go in peace, since you have sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Years later, David, uh, uh, Saul, and Jonathan would be killed on the mountains of Gilboa. Instead of when he heard the news that Saul was dead, the guy thought he would get a reward. Well, David had the guy's head taken off because he dared raise his hand against the king of Israel. And then he wrote a song about how the mighty have fallen. And it was for his love for, for Jonathan. And when dad was gone, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. He says, I want you to find him. And I want you to bring him to my house. And where he's going to sit at my table. And anything I can do uh, that's good for the, for the house of uh, Saul, for Jonathan's sake, um, I'm going to do it. So with these verses, um, you know, if you want to have a friend, show yourself to be friendly. Here's an Old Testament example of that. David and Jonathan, both of them had a, had a true friend. Let's go to the New Testament, <clears throat> John chapter 15. The second part of this verse is um, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, As I said earlier, he's not only our Savior, our King, our Lord, but in John 15, 
Jesus is talking about the new commandment in verse 12 that he's going to pass on. Let's pick it up in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you guys love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. Um, People are being honored uh, because of this um, shooting that took place on on this train. And uh, a couple of guys that were either on leave or new military saw this guy come out of the bathroom, armed to the teeth, with a bunch of clips, ready to take out people. And um, I guess it was four. The first guy that came after him, he's the one that got hurt. He had a couple bullets in him, but he made it. But they made these men heroes because these three guys took this guy out and saved a lot of lives. They laid down, this guy laid down his life uh, for the sake of other people. And many of anybody here probably has friends or heard stories of an uncle or somebody who was in the war that jumped on a grenade or somehow, some way, uh, was willing to lay it down uh, for, for somebody else to be saved. Greater love has no man than this, that he would not count his own life dear, but he'd actually lay it down for somebody else. And then in verse 14, And so many people have such a a wrong misunderstanding of our God. He says, you are my friends. And just think of that. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the maker of all things for his pleasure. He says, I call you friend. You're my friend if you do whatever I command you. There are people who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they're not his friends. He says, you're either for me or against me. There's no, there's no gray areas when it comes to Jesus. There's no gray areas when it comes to the gospel. Good time for an amen. No gray areas. Um, it was never meant to be so. It's an either or decision that you have to make. So the Lord says, you are my friend if you do whatever I command you. But his commandments aren't grievous. They're all good. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go, bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, James clarifies this. This is often misquoted, take it out of context. Because James says sometimes you pray and your prayers isn't answered, but the reason they're not answered is you're praying to consume it upon your own lust. Now, if your prayer is, Lord, do whatever it takes to save fill in the blank, I believe the Lord will go to any extent except to violate that person's free will to choose. I believe the Lord will divinely intervene. He will send people into their lives. The only thing he will not do is violate that person's choice to either accept him or reject him. These things I command you, and here it is again, that you should love one another. Well, question. 
Do you have a friend who would lay down their life for you? Think about it. Do you have a friend who would lay down his life for you? The Lord demonstrated his life for you and me by doing just that. He laid down his life that we might have life. He, matter of fact, he said, for the joy that's set before me. He was looking past the cross into eternity where we're going to rule and reign with him. Um, the other thing I want to point out here, between friends, there's no secrets. If you have a best friend, there isn't anything you can't ask them. And there isn't anything they won't tell you if they're your best friend. And so it is with the Lord. He says, everything that the Father has told me, I've laid it out to you. What do you want to know? Well, Lord, uh, what about your coming? What's that going to be like? Well, all you have to do is read all of Matthew chapter 24, and he lays it all out. It's sort of a mini version of the book of Revelation, but it's all there. It's all there for the reading. All you have to do is open your Bible, and uh, everything that God wants you to know about himself has been revealed. He, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And everything that he wants you to know right now, I'm telling you. That's one of the reasons we feel it's so important to teach the entire Bible, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. Paul said, I can die in peace now because I have not shunned to declare unto you the full counsel of God, all of it. And um, so a real friend, no secrets. It's laid bare. And all the unfolding before us that we understand, we understand what's going to happen. We understand what's going to happen with Russia, with Iran, with Israel, with the Middle East, what's going to happen to God's game plan for the rapture of the church, for the great tribulation, and his kingdom that's we've been praying for that's going to exist after that for a thousand years where you and I are going to rule and reign with him. It's all there, and he lays it all out to us. The other thing is that our God is not a respecter of persons like the scribes and the hypocritical Pharisees were. They prayed, well, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. We talked about it last Sunday. I tithe, I fast, I do this, I do that. Certainly not like that tax collector over there. They were respecter of people, and they were haughty and and proud. You know what they accused Jesus of? Um, Matthew 11 says, for John the Baptist Uh, came neither eating nor drinking. He was the guy out in a camel hair suit out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey. And on the other hand, they said, but Jesus, the son of man, he came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a glutton, and he's he's a wine-bibber, and he's a friend of tax, tax collectors and sinners. That's what he was known as. Uh, Jesus was accused of hanging with people that had questionable reputations. And um, in the Old Testament, we read uh, that he was, in James 2, 23, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And he was also called the friend of God. That's the reputation that Abraham had. Whenever Jesus would be traveling, if you were a Jew, you had to make it to um, three of the feasts. And usually, when you travel to a certain location, uh, you might have friends in the area. 
Well, whenever the Lord was going to Jerusalem, he would stay at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. And in John 11, 11, um, of course, the word came that Lazarus was, was sick. Go tell the Lord, have him get up here pronto. And um, Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go to wake him up. He was referring to he's already dead, but he didn't come out. He finally came out and they said, well, let him sleep, Lord. It's a good thing that he's resting if he's not feeling good. And then he told them plainly, no, he's, he's dead, and I'm going to go wake him up. But he referred to him as his friend. So in verse um, 17 here, here's, if the, this is what you need to take ho- home with you today. And that is, it's not a suggestion. These things I command you, that you love one another. And um, how do you know if you got it or don't have it? Well, the Bible says if you see a brother or sister in need, and it's within your power to do something about it, and you don't do it, then the question is, how can you say that the love of God abides in you? Because Jesus would do it. I was supposed to make an announcement. I promised Mary I wouldn't forget. I forgot. (laughs) And that is, but it works in great to to what I just said, is uh, we'll have people coming from all over the country for our prophecy conference. Could be our last one, the way things are looking. And so we went over the top with with speakers. It's going to be great to have Bruce Carroll with us. And there really is a lot that goes on behind the scenes. But quite frankly, we only have a, we have a green room where we serve meals to, to our speakers and stuff. But we, only, we don't have the help that we need right now uh, to be taking care of that adequately. So Mary said, would you please make a note and put it out there this morning that we need some people that will help with the meals and um, be servants uh, during this period of, of time. So there, I made the announcement, and now I can get back to the study. But I thought it worked in pretty good at that spot, don't you? <laughs> Maybe the Lord had that plan, I don't know. John, the, um, John and his brother James uh, weren't always this way. John wrote the Gospel of, of John. And um, talk about rough around the edges when they first got saved, like we all were when we first got saved. They were called sons of thunder. And when somebody didn't accept the gospel, they said, let's just call fire down on this place. And just like Elijah, wipe these guys out. The Lord says, you don't know my heart at all or my spirit at all. Not only were they rough around the edges in that area, but they sought the preeminence and um, they got their mother to go to Jesus. They figured the kingdom was coming And it looks like we got board positions and um, uh, secretary of state jobs are going to be up. So they get mom to go to talk to Jesus and the Lord says, what do you want? He says, well, how about when you come into your kingdom, you let John sit on your right hand and James sit on your left hand. And the other disciples heard it and they all got ticked off. And uh, so, you know, the Lord gave a little demonstration about who he really was And he says, okay, um, that's not for me to give. That's for my father to give. He'll take care of that. But in the meantime, let me give you an example about what it means to be a servant. 
And a little later, he would get down, and he began washing their feet. Only servants washed feet. Everybody had sandals. Uh, when you want, came into the house, the first order of business, sit on a little chair, there was a bowl there, and the servant washed your feet before you came into the house. He said, you want to be great? Then you learn to be servant of all. Now, I'm telling you the early days of John because in the latter years of John, when you're hanging out with Jesus, you change. For instance, in Antioch, um, they were first called the people of the way. But when the church was started in Antioch, they began to call them Christians. Why? Because they acted like Christ. They took on the name of their leader. Christians are followers of Christ, and they actually acted like it. So I want to take you from the rough edges of calling down fire and wanting to sit in a, uh, on a places of prominence with authority and seeking a position. And let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. The year is 90 A.D. It is six years before John would be placed on the island of Patmos. And here is this guy who went from son of thunder to this sweet old man, now in his old age, where he would write this beautiful epistle. Legend has it, and it's only legend and speculation. But when he couldn't get around any longer, and they would actually carry him and put him up, and they couldn't hear what what would the great apostle John have to say to the church. And the story just goes, little children love one another, and then he'd sit down. And um, that's a long way from calling down lightning from heaven. Let's pick it up in verse seven. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Gang, I can't tell you the day that I understood that verse, when it just was, it came real to me, and I thought, the creator, the maker, if he has a face, you'd actually be looking into what love looks like. The face of the living God. God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God had sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, then God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is God, as he is in God. 
And we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, for God is in him. Love has been perfected among us in that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is 90-year-old John. All the other guys have been martyred by this time. They all laid down their life for whoever, except John. The Lord had special arrangements. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs say they boiled John in Ephesus, but he, he wouldn't cook. <laughs> And he wouldn't die. The Lord supernaturally protected him the same way that he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Not, no harm came to him. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos. Been there once. Beautiful uh, Greek island in the Aegean Sea. Pretty much the way I'd always pictured it uh, in my mind's eye. And there is where John received the book of what we call the book of Revelation. And um, all things that the Father has shown Jesus, he says, I'm laying it out to you guys. It's all there for the taking. You want to know? All you have to do is be a hungry sheep and uh, desire to be fed God's word and um, you'll be fully equipped. The church, unfortunately, is guilty of misrepresenting Jesus. Much of the church is. It can become very legalistic. It can be people pursuing a position of authority. Some are openly in it for the money. They're fleecing the flock instead of feeding the flock. And um, um, when I was down in Arizona, they have a regular five or six stations that are nothing but, but Christian TV stations. And I thought... I was so embarrassed. I thought, why would anybody want to get saved after watching some of this stuff? Some of it is so blatantly um, in it for the wrong reasons or wanting attention for whatever. And I just, uh, it's, it's bad. Um, somebody texted me a picture of a T-shirt yesterday talking about misrepresenting the Lord in, in the church. Uh, the T-shirt read this. It said, you don't scare me. I was, I was taught by nuns. <laughs> Get those knuckles snapped a couple times. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Maybe. In the early Jesus movement, we had a saying. Because, you know, the young people, they can see through things. And they know, they know if you're for real. And they, they know if you're phony. And so when it came to Chuck... We couldn't see through them. And we had a saying that we actually had that Chuck emulated. And it went like this. Don't tell me how much about Jesus you know. Show me how much like Jesus you are. 
And when we saw the real deal, we wanted it. And um, all those people that were looking for peace and love actually found it. And those people are still, they, they haven't turned back. You know, If this was church or playing games, I'd be skiing in Aspen, Colorado to this day. I wouldn't be up here. But there's something I love more. And um, my ski buddies know I love skiing. But there's something I love more than that. And um, looking back on it now, I wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing. Um, it's money in the bank as far as I'm concerned. The great thing about the Bible and our Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't change. Uh, Chuck would often say, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Truth is truth. And if it was true then, and it was real then, then it can be true now, and uh, it just doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, I'd, I'd have to admit, I did rip off uh, the title, and everybody knows where it came from, You Got a Friend. But maybe not really. If I ask you who wrote the song, most of you here would say James Taylor. James Taylor did not write the song. The song was written, in my opinion, the greatest secular Christian songwriter was a Jewish woman. Her name is Carol King. And she wrote so many songs. Well, she, in January of 1971, was inspired by James Taylor listening to Fire and Rain. And there's uh, a line in there, and there's times when I couldn't find a friend. And I read an article by her yesterday, and she said it so moved me. She said, I didn't write the song. It just came to me. So the lyrics, of course, many of you are familiar with. But here's what a friend really does. James Taylor heard the song and said, I would really like to release that song. Well, that was the number one song in the the Billboard 100 in 1971. You know how much money James Taylor made off that song? It was given to him by a real friend. And he gets the credit, he gets the money, and oh, by the way, Carol King wrote it. But she had their own version of that. I said, Lord, I would really like a confirmation if I go down this road on uh, Sunday about if you want to have a friend, then you're going to have to be a friendly person. And then, of course, using you, there is this friend that sticks closer than a brother. Buck Storm is a very, very gifted singer-Christian songwriter. He travels a lot with Randy Stonehill. He's one of the most prolific writers, besides being a singer, that I've ever come across. I just love reading the guy. And I was with him in Cedar Rapids for a prophecy conference. He did the music. I'm on his uh, mailing list, and he's always writing things while he's on the road. And I'm going to close this morning by something from his book called The Miracle Man. And um, you'll understand while I'm reading it as I'm closing here this morning. He's quoting Ernest Hemingway. It's between um, a preacher and a guy named Luke. And he says, I thought about it, Luke said. I'm hanging onto a rope a thousand feet in the air over rocks, and I'm losing my grip, losing it fast. And I'm asking you, Mort, that's the pastor, what am I supposed to do? I need to know. I need answers. That's an easy one, Luke. You got to let go of the rope. You fall and you trust. Uh, See, Reverend, that doesn't help. I need real, what you do right now in the physical world. Answer, I don't want your spiritual stuff. No, you don't, boy. 
You need what I'm giving you. You need to let go of the rope. Nothing else. That simple? Huh? Yep, that simple. Might be a long job. You'd be surprised. And then Buck writes his own account. He takes off on Hemingway, and then he said, I've been there. Have you? I've seen the rocks below. The waves are crashing. My hands are tired. My arms are shaking. I slip down the rope a little, then a little more. I remember the old saying, tie a knot and hang on. I'm not sure whoever came up with that saying ever actually hung on to a rope. How am I supposed to tie a knot when I need every bit of my strength just to keep from falling? Plus, even if I could manage it, I have a nagging suspicion it would wind up looking more like a hangman's noose than a square knot. Jesus, I call. Lord says, yes. Where are you? Everywhere. I'm tired. I know. Let go. It's a long way down. Not really. Hang on. Maybe I can figure something out. Lord says, you can't. A thousand thoughts fly through my brain. What if he's wrong? What if he lets me go? Man, I've really done it this time. What if he's mad? But in the end, my strength fails. It always fails. Hands bloody with stubbornness. I finally slip and fall into the arms of my friend. Don't drop me, I say, looking down at the rocks again. Do I ever? No, but I did hang for a long time on my own. Where were you? I would have been easier to let go if I seen you down there. The Lord laughs. You don't know by now to look up? Who do you think was holding the top end of the rope in the first place? (laughs) And then he closes it this way. Look up, my friends. The beginning is near. And like Mort says, he ain't going to leave you hanging. Fair winds, Buck. Closing question. Do you know you have a friend that loves you so much? Doesn't call you a servant. Doesn't call you a slave. Yes, he's God. Yes, he's creator. Yes, he's your savior. Yes, he's Lord. He's all those things. But what he desires is a relationship that's on a friendship basis as you you talk to him on that level. That's what he desires. Amen? Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that there isn't a subject or topic in your word that doesn't deal with every issue of life. And we thank you this morning for the admonition that if we're going to have friends, that we have to be friendly ourselves. So, Lord, if we have the rough edges like James and John did in the early days, we give you permission, Lord, to continue working them out and help us turn out like you when all, all is said and done. Thank you for your word this morning. Bless it to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.